you go to customers, you talk to them, you kind of ask them what they want. It's a great way to build a business, but it's not a great way to build a change in product or the way people work or the change in technology. Isn't that the goal to build a great business? The way I think about it and what we did is we had an opinion around how things should be. And then we found customers that validated that opinion and we latched on and we just went after that. I'm still skeptical, but you've built one of the best companies in the history of Silicon Valley. You've raised over $200 million from funds like Excel, Bond, NEA. Tell us what we're missing. So Century's original and core business still today is called crash reporting, error monitoring, basically taking all the error logs and making them way more useful. Especially back in the day, you would talk to a lot of people who'd be like, well, I have logs. Why do I need this? And that that is actually very frustrating, those conversations, because like you could never convince them. I realized after probably far too much time that I should just not try to convince them. I should just move on to somebody else that more believes in what we're doing. And I think the risk for people is, can you find those? And if you can't find them, then maybe what you're doing actually isn't worthwhile and you should think about trying to do something else. And There's the kicker. But the takeaway is lead with a perspective, which you can only do if you have experience in that industry. And David mentions in the podcast that he had been building this for many years and open source technology that solved the problem for himself. He's a builder at heart and there's a lot to be said about that. He talks about funding challenges importance of feedback, and a lot more. Boom. Welcome to Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. We interview the best founders in the world and ask them what they did in the early days, right before that hockey stick growth moment. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell, a former founder. I live here in San Francisco, and I now work for Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk is a customer support platform, and we offer six months free to qualified product-oriented startups. Two partner shout-outs this week. First, check out Slack's 25% offer. You've heard of them. They're amazing. Check it out. Second, Ignition. Turn your roadmap into revenue. It's an interesting way to combine marketing, sales, and product to align on initiatives and also impact by revenue. Check them out. You get 90% off if you mention the code, which will be in the show notes. Boom. David, thank you so much for being on Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. I cannot wait to hear your story at Century. If you could just give us a high level of like, for anyone who doesn't know how big the company is now, how much money you've raised, just some like to get a benchmark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I should probably know these stats a little better. I think so. I think we're around 350, 400 people, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know, COVID has confused a lot of things in life, numbers included. Um, I want to say we've raised, I'm just going to go ballpark again because I don't actually remember the, uh, the numbers. It's 150 to 200 million in, in total capital, but we've also been around for a very long time. So the project's 15 years old. Uh, we fundraised in 2015. So even like VC side of things is eight years old at this point. So. That's man, it's amazing. Yeah, you you've built one of the best, most successful companies in Silicon Valley. You're in the top one percent or less of the valley. This is amazing. I think the the heart behind this podcast recently is that we don't want it to just share all the cool, flashy stuff. But there's so much more that goes behind this. So could you tell us a story that represents a frustrating moment that you had, or maybe a, even a hopeless moment building the company? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. So a, a quick uh, context setting. So if you're not familiar, Century open source project turned into commercial business that like still tries to like keep a lot of those open source values in place. And so early days we had the open source project, we bootstrapped it, uh, which is a very scary thing, uh, usually cause you don't make much money. And if you're trying to, especially if you're trying to pay your salary, good luck. We, we were fortunately employed at other companies, so we didn't have that concern. Um, but then, you know, we went around, we're like, Oh, we should fundraise. Uh, we were not very, um, I'm a very like uh, reactive personality. Like, I, I will change my mind like that, which is good and bad sometimes. And I will often not think through things. I will just iterate on like a decision. Um, and so we, we got to raise money in 2015. We had, I want to say almost 2000 paid customers. We had more than half a million in revenue. We were able to pay our salaries at this point. 
Uh, but we raised money because we're like, oh, there's a lot of other VC companies. It feels like it's going to be very difficult to compete um, to do whatever we want to do and hire all these people and stuff if we don't have money, you know? Uh, mostly we did not want to get put out of business by lack of funding. And so I'm like, oh yeah, but we already have more customers and revenue than like normal, you know, fundraised companies. This will be easy. It was not easy. It was actually extraordinarily frustrating. And I think it was not easy for a couple of reasons. One, we already made money, uh, which is good and bad. And two, a bunch of the aspects of Century didn't align with either what was hot in, in venture back companies or what people understood. And, and that's changed a little bit, fortunately, um, though it's also now changed into AI. So it's, it's weird. But uh, so back then, it's like I go around, I talk to all these VCs, you get all the classic uh, paradigms of just getting ghosted and all this. And I just remember most of them not even paying attention in the like, these are like you know, 15 to 30 minute coffee chats, and they couldn't hold their attention. So I don't know. But uh but we go through this and, and it seemed like nobody wanted to give us money. And I'm like, what are we doing wrong? And a lot of it was like, well, it's open source. How are you going to monetize for it? And I'm like, but we already make money or it's a developer tool. Nobody pays for developer tools, but we already make money. Uh, and it was all these just like very frustrating conversations. It just felt irrational to me. Um, anyways, it was it very quickly. I learned that venture is often a who, you know, game. Uh, and it's not because people I think are inherently, like trying to just play a networking game, but it's just, there's so many conversations and, and most VCs are just like bankers at the end of the day. They don't actually understand like the domain and that's fine. Um, anyways, eventually we found somebody who was a great partner who coincidentally I had overlapped with at Dropbox where I worked for a period of time and, and they helped us kind of go from there. And after that, it was great. Um, certainly many other painful things throughout the years, but that memory was just like so frustrating for me. And I think for a lot of founders, they have similar stories of how, just painful at first fundraises. And that's, you hear that all the time, but it's like, you're literally like a darling child, but yet they don't see it because you don't fit the mold that they're expecting. Yeah. And, and I would hope that if a bunch of those folks look back at that, man, that was a missed opportunity right there. A hundred percent. Is there, is there a word that you would give yourself back then now, knowing what you know, when maybe you just felt so frustrated at the end of, you know, coffee meeting a hundred uh, I don't know because I get frustrated by any of these things that are irrational. And so I don't think I could have fixed anything. And the saving grace was we had money. We would have just operated differently. We would have been a little bit more conscious of spend. I would argue we would have been more distracted by the business side. Like we were always like a, we were always commercializing and we knew we needed to make money and that was important to us. But having money versus not having money changes your focus and your priorities. Right. Uh, and, and we just really wanted to build the product, build the technology. Uh, and to do that, you need money. So, um, but yeah, I think you just got to tough it out, see what happens. Like, I, one thing, here, here's what I'll say you look back in your life and you're like, that seemed like a bad thing. And there's this, this anecdote, this like story. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but there's this story I love. And it just goes through some incidents that happen. And it's like, I don't know, kid gets a horse and the, the grandpa's, and, and they're like, that's so great. And the grandpa's like, we'll see. Kid breaks his leg on the horse. And the grandpa's like, oh, or they're all like, oh, that's so terrible. And the grandpa's like, we'll see. Um, kid can't go to war because his leg's broken. You know, rinse and repeat. Um, and that's how I think about a lot of things in life. Everything leads to the next thing. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, it's a set of decisions. There's always more, more to be made. I think good things are, there's always going to be opportunities, I guess. And I can tell that hopefulness. That, that's just a the theme in the Valley of all the founders that, we get to interview here. It's like, you're like, you're, there's just a resilience because you know that there's more opportunity and nothing hinges on one VC's decision or one customer's decision. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah, that's good. Well, help us with uh, going back to the early days for founders who are deciding to go all in on something or just continue testing. How much validation did you get before you started building or did you build something and then start validating it? Yeah, so that's that's tricky. And I think this is probably my weakest area is because like I just built a lot of open source software back in the day and Sentry was one of the many things that was used by other companies. And for me, I just built it because it was fun because I was getting this like positive feedback from peers that they wanted to use it. And they were giving me basically ways I can improve it. Right. Um, and that I'm like a builder at heart. And so that was like a big deal for me. And by the time we even bootstrapped it, like day one of bootstrapping, we had paid customers because people were just ready to pay. We didn't have a free account, mind you, but like, but they could just run the open source self-hosted. It didn't matter. Um, and so I feel like we already had product market fit before we even charged money. And so we were kind of lucky in that regard, but we had also spent, you know, several years developing the open source project and stuff. And it was clearly useful. We built it for ourselves first. Like I was, I was running in production at every company I ever worked at. Um, and I, I often give this advice to founders and I'm like, cause there's a methodology of product and, and specifically enterprise product is a, a worse version of this methodology for me you know, you go to customers, you talk to them, you kind of ask them what they want or what the, what they're looking for. And then you build that. And I don't think that's the right way, let alone to do R and D. It's not the right way to build like genuine product. That's going to be successful. It's a great way to build a business, but it's not a great way to build like a, a, a change in product or the way people work or the change in technology. And so what the way I think about it and what we did is we had an opinion around how things should be. And then we found customers that validated that opinion and we latched on and we just went after that. And a good example of this is like, so Century's original and core business still today is uh, called crash reporting, error monitoring, basically taking all the error logs and making them way more useful. And especially back in the day, you would talk to a lot of people who'd be like, well, I have logs. Why do I need this? And that, that is actually very frustrating, those conversations, because like you could never convince them. And so I, I realized after probably far too much time that I should just not try to convince them. I should just move on to somebody else that more believes in what we're doing. And I think the risk for people is, can you find those people? And if you can't find them, then maybe what you're doing actually isn't worthwhile and you should think about trying to do something else. And I think that's a hard conversation for folks, but if you can find those people, latch on and see what you can do with it. That is interesting. Is there any conversation, I know it was a while ago, that you could zoom into even, um, maybe not given the name, that where you kind of felt that just like you're driving your head against a wall, you're trying to change their mind, you're trying to educate all these things, but it just, it wasn't working and kind of that enlightenment. yeah. Absolutely. So I'm not a salesperson. I'm much better these days than I was. I used to be absolutely terrible at this, right? And I went into uh, uh, a big, uh, we'll call it a communications tool company where I knew some of the team. They were still a little bit smaller, uh, but I figured because I knew the team, like getting them to use Century would be easy. They would clearly see the value prop. They were kind of my peer in the industry. They were smart. They were sort of in that era of like technology progress versus just cog at a big, you know, corporate company, you know? Um, and so I go in like with absolute confidence. I'm going to go in and talk to them. We're going to get like Sentry up and running. And they're just like, well, we have a, we have Kibana, which is this like logging gra- uh, dashboarding tool. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but like, this is not that you don't wait, you don't understand. And they're like, well, do you think it's going to get like developers to like write less bugs or fix more bugs? I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's not, I can't change people. Like that's your job, you know? And I just went into this and I was, I had like absolute confidence going into it and zero coming out of it. And I'm like, and that was like one of the pivotal things where I'm like, I should just stop trying to convince people that they should switch off this thing and switch to this. I should just find the people that recognize the need for this and focus on them. Um, but 
But that conversation cemented itself in my memory because I had known this person. They weren't like a close friend, but I had known the person that I went to talk to and they ran the, the like DevOps function. I'd known them for like five years or something, you know? Um, and it, it was a good, like uh, a good moment of recognition that, you know, just having that network alone is not strong enough. People are not going to pay you money just because you're a nice guy or anything like that. Right. Um, it, was, it was very good. And it helped us, I think, focus a lot over the years. And even I, that, that, that analogy, maybe not that story exactly. I still use that today for people as we build new products of like, we got to find the people that want what we have, not try to convince people that what we're building is what they need right now. You know, if it's useful when they need it, they will find it, you know? Man, that is so good. I feel like as a former founder, spent way too much energy educating, striving, forcing, pushing that boulder up the wall. And you even hear validation around that in the startup community that it's like, keep going. But you're you're saying take that energy and funnel it in a different direction. I think, but that also might be my skill set, right? Like I'm a, I'm an engineer by trade. I'm not a salesperson. It's probably some salespeople can just get that, right? Like I know a bunch of people who have like, they have what I would think is not a useful tool and they just like crush it from a sales angle of convincing people to use it. And so I, I think maybe the answer is like, use your strengths. Uh, and my strength was just like building a product, having strong opinions about like how to like intuition, I guess, on like how to do it. Um, but I also think we're like a technology industry. That's that is generally speaking, if we're not building technology, what are we doing? Like we're not a sales industry. Yeah. But there's sales teams and marketing teams and all that. And, and so I always like go back to like, well, if product is your strength, make that your, like focus on that instead of the other aspects, you know? And so, so I think it was good. It was a good learning lesson. Um, I think it's hard for everybody though. Like, especially early stage, we, like I said, we had the product, but product market fit. Um, it, we, I was known, like I was like, I had some celebrity status within my community at the time. So it's, it, there's all these things that just make it easier. And that's why you can't really replicate anything. I love that. That's another trend that I consistently hear. Um, just like when, when people share advice on this podcast, it's like, do not take this as a word forward thing. Like you have to get the, the heart behind it and apply it to where you are. Cause it's different in a thousand different ways, but, um, this is really good. So, so help me with, so you, you've decided not to, to run your head against the wall, which sounds obvious, but, but at the time I completely get it. So now you're like, okay, we're just going to find the ones that are pulling us. How did you start to find them? And what were the channels or kind of visions around that? Yeah. So I think two, two key things a Century's business that's made it successful. One, I am like an absolutist on brands, like brand marketing, brand awareness as a channel, especially in like developer tools, because if you try to like literally a developer, if you try to sell to them, good luck. Like there's, there's so much junk in my inbox and I don't understand why people think I will read it, let alone respond to it. Like if I respond, it's because I'm mad. And, and so we focus on brand marketing and that's like, frankly, brand marketing is just being present. It's like making people aware that you exist, not selling them, it's just being in the conversation. Right. And so that was number one. It's like, we just needed to make sure people knew we existed. And the open source thing helps with that because you get a lot of goodwill and, and, and we would always try to, we'd always try to recognize that goodwill and, and make sure we maintain that because that helped us with the awareness of the brand. Right. And building a good product help with that because same thing, you get goodwill, create more awareness, word of mouth. Right. So that was one. And then we wanted to build like effectively a market share company, which is not common, frankly, in, in the IT space, it's usually enterprise a few hundred customers. Um, in fact, there's very, very few companies that have, you know, more than say 10,000 customers, let alone like even like 1000 customers. I would actually argue GitHub is the largest in the space from that regard and a huge anomaly, historically speaking, right? And so we wanted to do market share and we wanted to do market share because it's great to be able to talk to somebody in the tech industry and have them use your product. And like, it, ju it just makes your life more satisfying, right? 
So we did that. And then when you approach it, like just like any business decision, um, but with a more extreme scale, where are all the customers we don't have yet? Where are all the developers that can't use our product yet? And so it'd be like, oh, okay, they're building PHP apps. Okay, we need to go make sure PHP is a first-class citizen now. Like fix all that, build, build the technology to make it work, all this, right? Put that on repeat. And that was our entire strategy. And then eventually we got to this point where it was, um, I don't know, 2013 to 2015 era or something. It's like, we're like, okay, JavaScript. Everybody uses jQuery, which was this library at the time where you would do animations and like dynamic content and stuff. Very different than today. Um, but everybody used it. It's like, oh, if we could... Uh, if we could like instrument that and, and make sure people knew when they had bugs in that, every company in the world could use Sentry. Like we're like, that's, that's the goal. That will get us the opportunity of a lifetime, you know? So we do that. And then coincidentally, technology completely shifts towards JavaScript, like the, the single page applications, React, Ember, Angular, all these, these frameworks. And that was just the beginning. Like we see it now, it's even more aggressive than ever. And then, so not only did we recognize the market share opportunity, it coincidentally worked in our favor because it grew even faster and bigger. And the need was clearly there. And we didn't know that. At the, we didn't think about that at the time, but the need was there because going back to that logging conversation, I've got a team that's building a, a normal web server app, web service um, where they control the servers. They can just log in and change the code, see what's wrong. If I'm building a mobile app or a JavaScript app, I ship it to the customer. I can't log into their computer to see what's wrong. And so inherently there was that need in that industry. And I, I honestly don't know why it took us so long to figure that out. Maybe we weren't trying. Um, but as soon as we did, we changed all company priorities to say, first and foremost, we go after this front-end audience in the industry because they need our software. We don't have to convince them of its value. They will inherently just get it. And every single one of them inherently gets it. You know, uh, Coincidentally, it was also like a hard problem to solve, which helped because we're a technology company. Uh, we already had big market share and mind, you know, mind share and stuff. So it was like, that helps. But that was such a critical thing of recognizing that, that market demand. And, and it, even when we did that, like I said, we still had already a lot of customers and everything, but that, that compounded. And um, I don't know if it's public, but we have something like 50,000 paid logos today and 60% or something like that. That number is not fact. I'm just, it's what I recall hearing something like 60% of our audience uses us for JavaScript. They might use us for something else, but they also use us for JavaScript. And that is like, to me, that's wild. That's an amazing moment. Is there like a a story or a conversation with a customer or even with your founding team that you could like bring us into around that pivotal shift? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't even know. Cause we had all these like very um, ad hoc conversations back in the day where we're like, none of us were business people. We're just building stuff. There was a time where we like, we doubled, I'm not even kidding you. Right after we raised our seed round, we doubled revenue in like three months because we just added a thing to the app that told people when they were over a quota, like they just never knew before. And so by that, we literally just doubled revenue, which by the way, made our next fundraise significantly easier. Um, and so in a lot of this, we were just like very, we just cared about the problem. We wanted to solve it. We wanted more people to use our tech. And so I don't know, there were probably lots of micro conversations, but we were very involved in the community. And so like a couple of us were big Python um, software folks. One of the, the early hires, uh, was big in the JavaScript community. So we did have like, we had domain knowledge already that helped a lot of these conversations, which I, to be fair, I think is super, super important. Um, but I don't know that there was like anything early that really cemented that. We just kind of recognized things along the way. Um, and to be fair, they didn't all work either. So um, like we went after mobile for the same reason. We're like, oh, they also have the inherent need. Mobile is still a giant pain for our company from an investment point of view. It's, it's just hard. Like 
And it doesn't make sense. I could not tell you why. I don't know why it's so different than say the JavaScript community or the other web service communities, you know? Um, and so it's really hard to find concrete like decisions we made or lessons we learned that we could apply other than that kind of happenstance JavaScript thing where we keenly recognize and we're like, let's go full on front end. That's our first priority and everything, you know? I love it, man. Well, um, one common thing I've heard is your passion for the problem above making money above, you know, just all those things. And you, and it sounds like feedback around getting the customers, having those conversations. You were doing this before you even really had a business. Can you tell me just your perspective on feedback in general? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I was a kid, I worked at Burger King and I don't remember what the context was, but at some point somebody told me, it's probably because we were doing a terrible job, but they're like, for every customer complains, there's like nine more that don't complain. There's some stat like that in the industry. Doesn't matter what it is. It's probably true. It's probably actually way more extreme than that. Um, maybe less so with Twitter. Uh, but... Uh, but I, I, I've never forgotten that concept, right? And so I love negative feedback because negative feedback is so clearly transparent in what the problem is and you can synthesize that very easily. And so I love talking to customers that have complaints and that will give me problems to fix. I love bugs and like my, my skill. And I think generally speaking, what you find in stronger engineers, what makes them valuable is that they're just good at debugging. And that was always my skill. Um, and so I'm like, give me those problems to solve. Like I will like rip through it, you know? And, and that is just, I, I don't know. And so, and that's hard. Like as, as you get bigger, it's really hard to keep that kind of like feedback pipeline going. Cause it's like really easy to hop on a call with the customer. If you have a few hundred customers, if 50,000 50, paid, let alone the free customers and all this other stuff, I don't know how you synthesize that feedback, let alone get that feedback. Right. And so that's become like a big challenge as we've gotten bigger, but I, I am, I'm a very, very big fan of transparent feedback. We try to do it in, internally as well within the team. I will say it's not for everybody. It's hard especially with like text-based communication, it's really hard to synthesize like empathy and context around conversation. Uh, like I'll find I'm often trying to be sarcastic and it does not come off as sarcasm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been there. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. So I just, I think looking, and that's why I go back to find the customers that want what you have because mm -hmm. they are way more willing to actually actively give you feedback because they also want to improve it, you know, versus if you're just selling stuff to someone, they're like, ah, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I don't have an opinion on what I want out of it, you know? That's so good, man. I find the customers that want what you have. They're going to be more likely to give you that feedback and then run with that feedback. It sounds like you get fueled by that feedback. Um, I, I interviewed the founder of Tail Scale. They've raised like 112 um, working on a developer tool kind of product as well. And he's just obsessed with the, uh, just re reviewing negative feedback. He says he's constantly going on Twitter and looking for yeah. every version of their company name to just continually find the, the negative things. And then that's what they prioritize. Yeah, hundred percent. And I will say, like, whatever the opinions are on Twitter, um, I really hope it, it, you know, kind of maintains what it has in the past because it's one of the best customer channels I've ever seen from just like, like just engaging with customers kind of passively almost where they're just shouting in the void and then you can go talk to them. You know, they're, they're not like trying to talk to you. Otherwise they'd be in customer support and all this. And that is like phenomenal to me. And yeah, I, I love that. It's, it's so hard to replicate it. I think even open source, one of the reasons I inherently love the open source uh, ecosystem is because you often get that feedback, whether it's through, you know, IRC was our thing back in the day, or it's through GitHub thing or Slack or whatever means, you know, people kind of want to contribute. Um, and it's not always positive, but like if you can kind of separate the negativity from it, because like, I don't know, people, they have emotions, they get frustrated, all this. If you just get rid of all that, and you like read what the problem is, it's so valuable. Mm, 
That is so good. Is there anything, could, could you tell us about how, do you, how much of your time do you spend per week listening to customer feedback or talking to customers even now? That's probably, I probably spend more time doing that than anything else. Um, and, and it's, it's complicated because there's not much else I can do from a, like a hands-on where I'm not sort of just communicating or kind of giving people feedback in the company. Um, but forever, like as long as centuries existed, I've been very engaged in the community. I'd say I'm less these days than I used to be because I used to be like all over everything, um, especially on like GitHub and things like that. Uh, and even on like Twitter, but I will still say I'm like, I'm as, as involved as I possibly can be in conversations where I think there needs to be a voice or there needs to be reassurance for the customer or something like this. And so like, I'll find that like people randomly just email me because if they email me about a century concern, something definitely happens. Like we may not make a change, but like it will not get ignored by any means. Uh, Well, that's, that is really cool. What is the process? Like when you see a, a negative feedback, what, what first goes through your head? Is it, is this worth it or not? Like, how, how do you discern if this is something that I need to take and like real, we need to act on? Yeah. So I think it's complicated because like I'm, I'm CTO these days and I have a very loud voice. And so the complexity is like everything I sort of voice my opinion on is not weighted equally. Right. And I think this is a problem with a lot of leaders to be fair. It's not just me. Um, I will always try to make sure people see that feedback in my ideal situation is they can understand how to prioritize it, but we should always engage the feedback. We should always talk to the customer and make sure they know what we're going to do. Um, but I do think like the biggest challenge is people often not getting the feedback or not, or there being so much of it that they, like that's compartmentalized that they can't grasp. It. And that's like actually why I try to like be in all these conversations. So, because I can stitch it all together. I've got like 15 years of building this product. I have so much domain behind it. You know, it's very easy for me to like synthesize how one thing relates to another relates to another. Um, and sort of look at overarching problems and challenges. And, you know, maybe, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We make it up every day, but like maybe one day we'll figure out a more uh, like systemic process, I guess, systematized, uh, <laughs> a process to solve the problem, you know? Uh, I love and, but it. But yeah, it's still, it's a, it's a challenge, right? And I think that's, that's true for every growing company. And um, yeah, but it, yeah, and honestly, frankly, I mostly just like throw random, links to Twitter or four random emails to people. I'm like, can we do something about this? And I'm sure it interrupts them, but it's like, it's, it's, that's the job, you know, that's, we, we all got to do it. That's what's, that's what makes great companies great is that we mm. sort of care about those results, you know? Oh, it's so good, man. One of the last questions, it just like hit me really hard is, so you talked about in the early days, you had two different types of customers, the ones that you were kind of having to force and push, or, or maybe these were just prospects. They didn't fully get it, but maybe you kind of pushed on them at times. Um, versus like the ones that kind of pulled and they were just like, this is awesome. How do you discern getting feedback from the wrong type of customer? That's tricky. I think you just need an opinion. I think everything yeah. needs to be subjective at the end of the day. You need to take in the inputs, have someone make the decision. I am very willing to make decisions. Um, that helps me a lot. Not everybody understands yeah. them, but like, I won't name the customer, but we have this stereotypical customer at Century, which is like your traditional enterprise company. They always have this feedback for us. And I keep having to push less so these days because it's almost like this, this known campfire story at Century, but it's like, look, we don't build features like one-off features. We don't build a feature that only 10 people need. Like if there's not a thousand customers that need this, why would we, why would that be a priority? And that gets very hard to trick, like navigate, especially if you're on the sales team, it's like maybe your enterprise sales, you have like, I don't know, a couple dozen accounts or something. That's one of your accounts. We're not going to like, we're not going to act on their feedback. That doesn't seem right. 
But at the end of the day, it's like in the grand scheme of things, like if you just focus on all these little like sort of edge case features that don't really help the, the bigger picture, that's, that's a really big problem. But I will say that's very easily measured. It's very easy to put like a like quantification behind that conversation. However, it's also just emotion and it's hard to get past emotion and, and, and saying, hey, step back and think about does this matter or not? And sometimes just say no to customers, which is good and bad for what it's worth. Don't always say no. You can say no and then or say yes or sort of yes, but maybe um, and then say no later. Uh, but I, I think people are not willing enough to say no. That's Man, that's so good. Well, the last question, I just wanted to add this now, is in your journey of success, what percentage, like a billing century, what percentage do you think, do you attribute your success to luck and timing versus skill? I think almost all of our success is just hard work and ambition. Mm. Um, there's obviously like, like timing is hypothetically a thing, but our industry was never cool. Like, We've made it into such a, like, nobody ever thought we would make as much money, at least I didn't, off of air monitoring as we do. And none of the other companies have come close that were in the space. And most of them are gone now. Um, and so that to me is not a timing thing. It was, it was just like, that was out of like brute force. Um, mm. And I think the, the challenge I think a lot of people have is you need that validation that something you're doing is, is worthwhile and can grow. Mm. And you also need to not get distracted. Uh, a lot of people just get distracted uh, things change, but like the co- technology doesn't really change that much. Um, even now, like everything's AI. And I'm like, mm, I don't see how LLMs apply to our business. I don't see a path. Maybe there is, maybe we just haven't found it yet. But I'm like, let's not get overly distracted by this thing because we have other important things to solve and errors are not going away or performance problems are not going away. We still need to solve those problems. And maybe landscape changes, like we have refrigerators with computers in them. Maybe we have to figure out how that works or something. But but the fundamentals don't change. And I, I just think a lot of people get too easily distracted in the industry by whatever the hype train is, right? Mm. Um, and that that focus concept and constraints, I think are the most important things you can do within an org. And just recognizing if it's working or not. And and if something doesn't work, who cares? Move on, do the next thing. You know, there, it, there's all these like little things that are honestly like obvious when you think about them, but it's really easy to not act on that in the day-to-day as you're trying to build something, so. David. Thank you so much for your time. This is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Zendesk for startups, check out our website, zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're always looking to improve. So don't hesitate to email me with any feedback on how we can ask better questions, guests to target, or anything else so we can do to better help you as a founder. My email is adam.odonnell at zendesk.com.